0: Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. As most of you know well, we have been studying the book of Genesis for the past several months. And it will take us many more months to work our way through this book. But From the beginning of this study, we have noted the fact that the book is a record of God's self-revelation as the Creator of and the Sovereign over all that is. There was a noteworthy pattern that demonstrated this reality in the first two chapters. And simply stated that pattern was this. God spoke and creation obeyed. God spoke, creation obeyed. But as we have noted since, that pattern was broken in chapter 3. Because the Scriptures are clear about the fact that when God commanded the man and his wife, they chose to rebel against His Word and to disobey His command. For the first time in the creation story, we find something or someone saying no to the Maker. The last few times I taught in this book, we wrestled with the truths that Satan was crafty. That the man and his wife sinned and hid themselves. And that because of this sin, God cursed the ground. And declared that curse plainly. Chapter 3. The past couple of weeks, Pastor Dave has continued to help us study the book. I'm thankful for his teaching while I was away This morning, rather than taking the next step, what I want to do is something that he told you I would do. I told you before I left that I would do. I want to go back with you to a verse that I promised you we would revisit. It was in the midst of a context we we studied together. I told you we'd come back to it again. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon from the final verses of Genesis 3. What I want to do is go back and reread that context. So basically the final verses of chapter three so we can see where this verse is found. So Genesis chapter three, let me begin at verse nine. I'm going to read down through verse 24. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life a lot in these verses we've been studying over the last few weeks, and as we noted during my last sermon from these verses, there is an astounding, we might say, promise-making, life-giving, reality-altering verse that's tucked right in the middle of God's curse on the serpent. I want you to notice with me verse 15 again. Where We read this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As we, both Pastor Dave and myself, have already noted, Several times in the series, this verse has foundational significance for believers. Among scholars and theologians, this verse is known, we've told you before, as the, the proto evangel or the proto evangelium. They use that word because it means the first gospel. The first gospel. In other words, this means that this verse contains the very first promise and proclamation of the good news that the Creator God would indeed send a serpent-crushing, soul-rescuing Savior for fallen mankind. Sinners like us. A couple of weeks back, as Pastor Dave was preaching, he reminded us that Genesis is a book of firsts. We've been talking about that as we've studied through. He itemized a number of these firsts in his sermon. He talked about the first day and the first plants and the first animals and man's first breath and God's first command and the first sin and the first birth and so on that we've been seeing all the way through our study of Genesis. seems only fitting, doesn't it, that in the midst of all of these firsts, God would also include the first gospel. The first promise that He would send the Savior. For so the time that we have this morning, what I want to do is I want to consider this verse by looking at three main ideas. Three, three big thoughts this morning. Very simply, I want us to see the problem. I want us to see the pattern I don't want us to see the promise. There's a problem, there's a pattern, there's a promise. So let's go ahead and dive right in and look at these three main thoughts. I want to begin with the problem. The problem. You say, Pastor Joe, how, how is there a problem in that verse? Well, I would say this, that historically, the church has wrestled with just how to handle the language that's found in this verse. There have been discussions and debates. There have been varying opinions and interpretations of what to do with this verse. In fact, I want you to look again at the language of verse 15, where speaking to the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Key phrase. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, the problem for interpreters has been with how to handle that little phrase, her offspring. What's it talking about? What's the offspring or the seed, depending on the translation you may be reading? Does this phrase refer to an individual? Has been the discussion, a person, or is this phrase what some have argued as a collective singular, referring to to more than one person or, or even many, many people? Who's the offspring of the woman? Is it a lot of people or is it talking about one person? Some have suggested through the centuries, as the church has wrestled with this question, that her offspring refers to humanity as a whole. The seed of the woman is everybody who's born, right? They're, 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 they're the offspring of women. Is that what this is talking about? Her offspring. Humanity as a whole. Others have suggested that the phrase refers to the saints who make up the church. So not the whole of humanity, but the the saints of the church. And while one may make sense logically, as you think through how people come into the world, the other actually has a text from which it's argued in church history. You see, the explanation for this second, the idea that the saint its talking about the saints in the church is rooted in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, where we read these words. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Seems pretty compelling. There's your answer. You all are the offspring of the woman that crushes the serpent. Is that what it's talking about? Well, I would argue that while that is a compelling verse and it has much to teach us, we'll come back to it later in the sermon, there's more to be considered to understand that verse biblically in the whole of what's said in Scripture. Still others have suggested, uh moving from the phrase her offspring back to the phrase the woman in the verse, that the woman in, the, in Genesis 3.15 refers to uh the Virgin Mary, not Eve. They say that that is actually Mary, and they make a comparison or a connection between the two. Many, many, though, throughout history have taken, as I do, her offspring to be a prophetic reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come, defeat the enemy, and save his own from sin and wrath and the grave. to be honest, the church fathers and many respected scholars throughout history are all over the map on this question. Depending on where you read and who you read, you'll find a variety of takes on Genesis 3 and verse 15. And some even take not just a singular position, but a hybrid position trying to use more than one of these possible ways to explain the verse. But friends, I believe that there is a biblical pattern that addresses the historical problem and it makes one of the varied ex- expressions or explanations of the verse rise to the top as the best way to understand this verse. So we don't just want to understand the problem this morning, I want us to understand secondly and consider the pattern that I'm talking about. The pattern. You see, one of the best ways to discern the meaning of a word is to use, uh, as it's used in a biblical context, is to see if there's any kind of indicator or, or pattern in the text surrounding that verse and then throughout the rest of scripture that would inform the way that we understand and interpret what's said there. And fortunately, I would argue that there is such a pattern in Genesis and then throughout scripture to help us understand this verse. But let's just begin with what we find in the book of Genesis. You know, as I was wrestling with this and and preparing for today, I, I, I thought it seems that it would be wise to see if anyone present to hear the Lord verbalize this curse. Did they ever do or say anything in their stories to help us understand what they thought he meant? So he's speaking to the serpent or to Satan, but Adam and Eve are present. We might ask it this way, is there anything in the life or the language of Adam or Eve that would help us discern whether or not they believed that God was referring to many people or to an individual when he spoke of her offspring? When they heard these words, what did they hear? What were they thinking? And I would argue that there is certainly an indicator right here in this story and what follows. You see, immediately following the curse and their expulsion from the garden, we read this in the first verse of the next chapter. Genesis 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Conservative commentators seem to agree that Eve's language here seems to indicate that she thought that she had just given birth to the offspring that had been promised in the previous verses. He's here! He said that he would give a seed of the woman and she seemed to think the individual had arrived. Now someone who's skeptical might Look at this and say, well, that's a stretch, isn't it? She's talking about a man. It's not the same word. You sure that's what she meant? And I think the case actually gets stronger the more you read. Because you just have to keep reading chapter 4 and you know the story of what happened to Cain, right? And what Cain did to Abel and all of the fallouts. And so we read in verse 25 of chapter 4, these words, when the next child is born. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another, here's your word, offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. From the way that Eve spoke about the children born to her, graciously given to her by God, she seemed to believe that God's promise had to do with an individual, not a mass of people, who would become the serpent crusher. You say, well, that's Eve, and she only heard those words. Is there anything else in Scripture that would help us understand this? And I would argue that there is actually more to be gleaned from the book of Genesis. You see, it's worth noting the fact that the book of Genesis is consistently concerned, as you study the book, it's consistently concerned with family lines through which God brings offspring into the world. This is not the last time you're going to hear words like Offspring or seed or sons. In fact, this is a main theme of this book. In fact, over and over again, the stories found in this book are set off by genealogies or records of family trees. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat begat, so-and-so. Family lines and offspring are all over this book. In addition to the genealogies in this record of Genesis, we find covenants that God made with his own. For instance, God's covenant with Noah. Don't have to read far to get there. Genesis chapter 6, we read some pretty disturbing words at the beginning of that chapter. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved into his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. You say, I, th- I thought he promised to send a seed. An offspring. But he's going to kill them all? Well, what's going to happen? But you just have to keep reading Genesis 6. In fact, the very next verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God gave grace. To what end? Keep reading. God said to Noah, verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Friends, you read the stories of the genealogies, you read the stories of the covenants, and what you find is the fact that God chose to show grace. In this context, He showed grace to Noah. He preserved the line, and He spared His children or His offspring. You watch the pattern of the text and you find the significance of the language. In fact, it's not just here. You read a little bit further in the book of Genesis and you come to chapter 12 and you find not only God's covenant with Noah, you find God's covenant with Abraham. And in God's covenant with Abraham, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we read these words. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram's thinking, I'm sure, how in the world are all the families of the earth going to be blessed in me? Well, God revisits this covenant with Abram. And in chapter 17 of Genesis, we read this, and God said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. After you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, we read that verse and we hear offsprings. All the generations of your family to follow are going to be blessed of God and be a blessing to the world. But you know what's interesting is that when you come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul takes this promise up. And he writes about the offspring of Abraham. And in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul explains now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then he goes further. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, Paul says, who is Christ? The offspring is Christ. Friends, it is amazing to think that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament a divinely inspired commentary on God's covenant with Abraham. Elsewhere, the Scriptures record God's covenant with David. Oh, that we had time to chase that. We don't. It also tells us of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Oh, we have more time to chase that. We don't this morning. Even though we don't have time to chase them, friends, these all have implications for us. And it's worth noting the fact that all of this points to the fact that all of these promises establish a pattern that point to the fact that God's original promise pointed not to a mass of people, but to an individual. Namely, Jesus Christ. Before we move on, it's worth noting the fact that the Apostle Paul actually alluded directly to Genesis 315 when writing of Christ and another passage found in Galatians. You probably know this one well. Galatians chapter four, verses four through six. You read this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. How? Born of a woman. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba! Father! Again and again in our New Testament, we find this language of the promise made in Genesis 3 and verse 15, and it is pointing to Jesus over and over again. Friends, the pattern of Scripture is unmistakably plain. Jesus Christ is her offspring and the long-promised serpent-crushing Savior of mankind. All this is actually alluded to by the pronouns that we find in our text. Verse 15 said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Well, understanding that, then, I think we need to use the remainder of our time to zero in and look more closely than at this this promise. We said there's a problem and there's a, a pattern. But I want you to see the promise. The promise. You see, understanding the pattern of the biblical teaching actually helps us wrap our heads and our hearts around the promise that's contained in the verse. Again, verse 15 is plain. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. The bruise there can be translated crush. And you shall bruise or crush his heal. I don't want you to miss this, friends, that even as God cursed the serpent, the enemy, the Creator God promised to send one into humanity who would ultimately destroy the enemy of our souls. We've seen this before, but what we find here in this exchange with the serpent is not simply God talking to a sneaky snake right it's not about the snake it's about the one who was behind this inspiring this deception in fact the clearest description of this enemy is found in the book of revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 where we read this and the great Dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And His angels were thrown down with Him. Elsewhere we've seen where Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. And He says, You say your father is Abraham. Abraham. But you're actually of your father, the devil, who he says was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. This pattern of language is found again in Scripture, making much of this deceiver who from the beginning was deceived. And we know his ultimate end. In Revelation chapter 20, we read of his end Read a little further down in the story there in Revelation 20 and it says, And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the end of that one. We we know that is coming. But I think we need to ask another question. If the promise of Genesis 3.15 is that Jesus will crush Satan, then when did or when will King Jesus crush the serpent's head and render him a defeated foe? There have been a number of suggestions as to when this was or may be. But may I submit to you that the simple answer to that question is simply this. Christ did so at the cross. At the cross. You may ask, do you have any biblical basis for saying so? And I'm glad to say, yes. (laughs) Yes, I do. I don't just want you to take my word for it. I want you to see what the Bible says, and it doesn't just say it once. You see, friends, the writer of Hebrews put it like this in Hebrews chapter two, writing of Jesus. He said, "Since therefore, verse fourteen, the children share in flesh and blood; he, Christ himself, likewise, partook of the same things, uh, partook of flesh and blood. He was incarnated. To what end?" That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you realize that the writer of Hebrews is actually saying that one of the reasons for the incarnation was the crushing of the serpent's head? One of the reasons Christ took on flesh and blood was for this very purpose that he might through his death step on the serpent's head and destroy the one who has the power of death. The writer of Hebrews is not the only one who says such a thing. In Colossians chapter 2 Paul wrote something similar. Colossians 2 and verse 13, what did he say? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside when and how? Nailing it to the cross. Next verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. When he speaks there of rulers and authorities, he's speaking of spiritual powers and hierarchies. Those who were ruling over, those who were, were, were conquering, those who were captivating the lost. Christ disarmed them, took their power, and shamed them publicly at the cross. It's the same language that Paul used in the previous chapter of Colossians when he said to us as believers this, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin." My friends, we could go on. There are other texts that make this same reality plain, that reinforce this reality again and again. This truth that Christ Himself conquered, these powers, there is no thing we have to fear. No one we have to fear now in Christ Jesus. The Bible is plain that on the cross, King Jesus crushed the serpent's head, defeated him, disarmed him, took his power, and put him to an open shame. Let's be clear about this. Satan still rages. Though he rages, he is A defeated foe. I don't know if you've ever been party to the dispatching of a snake. I think many of us are here like, I'm happy when others dispatch it. I don't want to be around for it. But I would submit to you something. It's fascinating. If you ever, uh, as my dad used to say it, cut off a snake's tail behind its ears. Think about that a minute. Yeah. If you ever do so, you'll find that the snake acts alive still. In fact, I remember once as a child, we had a snake in our yard and my dad took its head off. And for the next two hours plus, my brother and I played with that snake. It had no head. But it coiled. It struck It wrapped itself around our arms and squeezed. You would have thought it was alive. And it had no head. Hear me, friends. Like a snake still writhes and coils and strikes after its head has been cut off. Satan fights and he seeks to deceive every soul that he can with whatever time he has left before he is bound forever and ever and ever. But he is still a defeated foe. His head has been crushed and his doom is sure. And yet, so many who call themselves the people of God act fearful and powerless in the face of his opposition. We act as if greater is He that is in the world than He that is in us. Why? Why are we so afraid? Why are we so fearful? We look at the world around us and yes, things are bad and they seem to be getting worse. We read our Bibles, it seems that this will continue to be the case. Stick around. Why are we so afraid? Why are we so insecure? Why do we act and talk and post as if we're on the losing side? We know better. We know what our Bible tells us. We know what our Lord has done. But we still cower and run from the snake, it seems. Rather than boldly stand and speak truth, knowing our Christ has crushed His head. You see, friends, all of this that we have just studied is directly connected to the saving work of Christ. That work He did on the cross, and it's connected to the work that He's continuing to do in sanctifying and securing us. But I wonder sometimes if we live like it. I don't know if you noticed in the passages that we just read how absolutely full of the language of salvation they were. I'm not going to pull them all back up on the screen to show you again. You can rehearse them on your own sometime. But I I find it fascinating that these passages that tell us that even as Christ kept God's word and crushed the serpent's head, He set us free. He made us alive alive. He forgave us all our trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He redeemed us. He forgave us all our sins over and over and over again. We find the language of salvation in these texts, my friends. And it is the thoroughness of His finished work that gives us confidence each and every day as we trust and live for and walk with Him. But I have to ask the question: Do we believe this? It should be no wonder to us that John chose to encourage believers with these words rooted in the promise of our text, First John. Four and fourteen little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This same promise is what Paul connects our ongoing confidence to in his letter to the Romans. I don't know if you've paid attention to this, you know this passage, but it was fascinating because I was, I was studying this week again the connection of language. Romans chapter 8, you know these, these words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We tend to think that means just human beings, right? Right. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jump down to the end of that passage. Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor life. Now keep reading. Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is Satan in that list? Yes, He is. And not even He can touch your security in Christ. But do you live like it? Do you walk like it? Do you trust like it? You speak like it. This, my friends, is why I believe Paul said what he did at the end of Romans. That the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not because you will be the serpent crusher, but because Christ already has and you walk and you live as conquerors, not victims. But I wonder, is that how you think? Is that how you live? I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm fascinated and I am captivated by the consistency of Scripture That follows through on every word of every promise our God has ever made. And friends, it must be understood as we close that this gospel establishing promise recorded in Genesis 3.15 is only good news for those who are truly and eternally trusting in Christ alone to save them. This promise is for those in Christ... And so I have to ask, my friends, is this promise good news for you? Are you in him? Or do you just know a lot about him and maybe you even like him a lot? But you're not in anybody's kingdom, you think, but your own. You're in charge of your life. No, those in Christ have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Is He your King? And therefore, He then is your confidence? And friends, if it is good news for you, you are in Christ, then let me ask, is this promise sanctifying and securing for you? We simply read these words and we pass over them and we move on. I want us to see that this gospel establishing promise is something God fulfilled. And he continues to proclaim that good news and calls us to do the same. So to that end this morning, I want us to pray that by His grace, we will be found in Him, being sanctified and secured in Him, and proclaiming the good news to others who still need to be found in Him. So to that end, let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for Your Word. I thank You for Your truth. And I pray that you would take these realities and you would sink them deep into our own minds and hearts. I pray that you might give us the confidence in Christ that you intend for us to have. Father, I pray for any who are here outside of Christ, would you save? Even this morning? Father, for those who would be here and say they are in Him, I pray that the realities, the truth of Scripture might be sanctifying and securing for us. I pray that as we gather today and we fellowship in the couple of hours to follow, Father, that you would use these things as a source of great comfort and encouragement that they might stabilize us as we walk together today. For it is in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.